approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, I got to switch you over to the other side of the screen there. How are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Life is good. Man, I'm having a great week. We had uh, my son, uh, his family, his wife's family, I should say. So the in-laws were here in town. They stayed at our home and they just went back to Vegas today and taking a flight back to Ohio tonight. But it was fun to have them around and life is going good. How are things with you? Good. We had um, a challenge this week, which was over the course of one week to become experts on the topic of free will philosophy. So yeah, this has been <laughs> exciting. Uh, we've, we'd be both tinker in it enough to kind of follow along with the arguments, but uh, diving kind of deep into it today because we've got a really cool guest that we're going to have, a, I think, a really good conversation with. A really awesome guest. It's something that comes up when we're talking about people who are, you know, they're starting to deconstruct religion, they're deconstruction, they're deconstructing maybe the concept of self or the concept of grand narratives, and then they'll come up on free will and, you know, deconstructing free will. But, um, you know, these arguments get really philosophical and then you're starting to bring in quantum mechanics. And so like you, uh, I'm trying to make sense of it. And I feel like I can follow everything, but I couldn't like write a book on free will, which mm. is why it's so great that we have someone, uh, David Lawrence on the show today, who actually did write a book on free will, who can kind of help mm. us see what's happening in this broader conversation. Love it. Should we bring him on? Yeah, let's bring him on. All right, here we go. David, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Awesome. Excellent, my friend. All right, so this is David Lawrence. He has a bachelor's in philosophy and a law degree from USC, and he has written the book, Are We Biochemical Robots? Uh, in response to really Sam Harris's work on free will. And so we would just love to start us off. Can you just tell us about you and how you came to write about free will? Sure. I just picked up a book of Sam Harris's at random. Um, I like Sam listened to his podcast, read his books on religion, found them terrific, uh, interesting. And then I picked up this book on free will, uh, expecting to enjoy it as much as anything else I enjoy about Sam Harris. And um, I sort of started scratching my head about three pages into it and said, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. Wait a second. That's not my intuition. And the, the more I read, it's a short book, but the more I read, the more I became confused because um, I didn't understand any of it. I didn't understand the arguments. I didn't understand how they were framed. Uh, they didn't make any intuitive sense to me. And that sort of spurred me into a, I want to take a look at this stuff. And that, that uh, ticked off an uh, era of some research, just like you did this weekend. It took me a little longer than one weekend to uh, <laughs> absorb what there, there is until I found a grounding for it. And I decided to write a, an article sort of a reply to Harrison to give the counter arguments that I had discovered in the course of my research. 
And that 40 page article became 60 pages and the 60 pages became 100 pages. And you and here we are with a book that's, you know, a full book, not not, not anything I started out to do for my little reply article. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I guess we could just start with, you know, we're just going to kind of be laying down some terms that we'll go into and just how mm -hmm. do you define free will? And then also just kind of give us a sense there's there's multiple voices in this space. There's um, religious voices. I think the only time I heard Sam Harris really debate about free will was when he had um, that debate with Dan Dennett, where Dan Dennett was calling Sam out on mm -hmm. a number of things. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of how do you define free will and really just kind of give us a bird's eye view of what's going on in this conversation? Sure. Uh, let me go back and define determinism first, because I think it's a, a better way to sort of get into the subject. Determinism is the idea that that everything we think and everything we do was predetermined at the Big Bang. And at the Big Bang, energy was sent out that became a causal chain of physical events that came all the way down to this moment. And it's determining what we think and what we're experiencing right here, what the audience and listeners experience right now. They're not under our control, our thoughts, our actions are not under our control. Nothing about us is about under our control. Everything we do is caused by unknown forces um, in this causal chain. We don't have any free will. We don't have any choice. The feeling that we have free will, the feeling that we decide is an experience that is caused by these unknown physical forces. So that's the basic, uh, determines the scientific point of view, science studies, causal relations and, and how things relate to each other. That's the, the, the pretty much what causation is. Free will is what we think of it. Well, there's several definitions. The way I'm using it in the book is the most common and in a way radical definition, which is that we have freedom to make decisions. Our decisions affect the world. They affect physical events in the world. They come down to something that's happening in consciousness that also has neural correlates, but it, but it originates in, in consciousness it breaks that causal chain that goes back to the Big Bang. It comes down to our choices. Obviously, we're, we're determined in a, a number of senses, influenced in a number of senses. We have a body that biology has provided us, and we have a neural system that developed with evolution. So we have a platform on the basis of which we would exercise our free will. We're not entirely free. It's not a... Uh, an omniscient, omnipresent kind of a thing, which which is actually what Harris how Harris defines it, and then rules it out on the basis of uh, an omniscient, uh, complete control over everything is, is his phrase. Let me but ask uh, let me ask a question, which is so in my mind because I think there's so many ways that these words and terms are defined that this argument can kind of be like a moving goalpost, mm -hmm. and the, the easy way for me to understand what when I say free will and to describe it to somebody and I just want to see if you agree is that if we went back in time and you knew only what you knew in the moment where you originally made that decision that you at least in some situations you actually were free to have made another decision you could have made another decision you weren't limited to the one that your brain ended up choosing that if we go back in time and you have the exact same information on the table 
you actually could have made a different choice than the one that you made. Yes, that's the common sense or, or what's called the libertarian view of free will. You had, you could choose otherwise. You could think otherwise, you could act otherwise with a state of the universe of molecules and quarks and leptons and all that stuff yeah. in the exact same state. And do you agree? Do you agree that you agree then that, uh, let me say it this way. What your position is, is that at least in some situations, you believe that the human mind could have made a different choice than what it did, at least in some given moments. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just want to clarify. No, no pushback or anything to that. I just want to make sure that, that we're framing this the same way as we kind of continue the conversation. What I framed in the book, it was more of an uh, against determinism and how it doesn't work, both conceptually and scientifically and empirically and logically. It wasn't so much a book about, hey, we have free will and here's why. It was more uh, a book about, uh, sorry about that. Um, I freely chose to not take that phone call, if anyone was wondering. Um, a determinist would say the neural signals in my brain did that, just, just to be fair to the uh, free time for the other side. Um, so I was critiquing determinism more than I was defending free will. But if you take determinism off the table, what do you have? And that's part of what, where I end up on the free will issue. I tend to think in the ultimate sense, and when you think about where physics is going to be 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, my feeling is that the dichotomy of free will causation is going to be replaced by something else. And it's going to seem like an antiquated way of looking at relations between things. And there's going to be a a new paradigm in the future that is going to replace the whole dualist kind of a thing and relations between events, mental, physical, mental, mental, physical, physical are just going to be thought of in a very different way. So I'm not so sure that ultimately we have free will in the sense that we're using it now because it's based on a, a dichotomy that conceptually we're, we're involved with and wrapped up with, which I think ultimately is likely to be proven wrong and superseded. Okay, so um, I think my intuition here is that I, when I listen to debates about free will and I'm thinking about why do people really care? Why, why are we, people are getting really upset even about all of this. And it's almost become a battleground the, the debate of free will is a battleground for whether or not we have a self or a soul can be brought into it. So Ben Shapiro was asked, what's your number one reason for believing in God? And he said something like we have free will and that comes from somewhere. And he made a link to God. And that was really important for um, his faith in God that we're not just kind of bags of physical mm -hmm. chemicals. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Sam Harris, but also other kind of Eastern thought where and i get the sense sense with sam harris that his arguments for free will or how he uses science is not because he found the science first and said we don't have free will it's almost as if he you know he went to india and sat in a cave and you know watched his mind and has some intuitions about free will from that experience and then like we all do when you dig into the science and it, you know consciousness is so mysterious that you kind of see science the way maybe you you want to see it or at least your experiences 
you know, help you to see it. And so is, is free will a battleground for something bigger, which is, you know, do we have a soul? Do we have a self where Eastern thought will say, no, you know, maybe the self is an illusion. That's very mm -hmm. much a part of Eastern thought. And then for the West, the idea that you have a soul in a space that's more than just, um, you know, how you're affected by the world. And that's a, a very God space. And it's almost like those two ideas are battling each other on the battleground of free will. Do you get that sense? Yes, I think there's a lot of levels that are battling themselves. The self, no self, and the science, uh, religion dichotomy, and the autonomy, surrender your authority on a uh, uh, level of looking at it. I was thinking the other day that if I write another book, I have a thought germinating about this no self idea and the idea that the self is illusory, somewhat related to free will. And I had this thought that there's this convention in Las Vegas of no selves. And all these selves are going to celebrate that they're not a self in Vegas and it's illusory. So they go to Vegas and they take buses and they take planes and so forth. And they, they walk into the convention hall and there's a bunch of no selves, you know, walking into the convention hall and taking a seat and at night, some of those no selves are gonna go gamble a little bit to try things. Uh, so I, I was just wondering maybe what, what would a no self convention look like? You'd think there's a self somewhere in that mix. So the idea of no self uh, may, may be another uh, uh, a point of departure for talking about these uh, notions that make, that might be your that next make no book. sense to me. No yes. sense to me. That might be your next book. You are a self. <laughs> yeah, we're cells uh, playing at n being no cells. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying there isn't a higher dimension of spirituality or a plane of things where that are a part of ourselves. But it's another thing to say that our cells are an illusion. We can be connected to something bigger, greater, however you want to define it, spiritual. But that's something different than saying there's no self. I don't know why the self has to get uh, jettisoned because there's a larger dimension to our being. Um, so I may go to the non-self uh, Vegas, but I, I don't know how I'm going to get to that convention if I'm not a self. I've been puzzling mm -hmm. with that a while. Mm -hmm. And to relate it back to free will, it's interesting. People like go to India or they have their revelations about not having free will or not being a self. Well, who's having that revelation? And if you and if we're determined, that revelation is the causal effect of quarks and neurons and everything else that descended in this causal chain from the Big Bang. So you can't even say if you're a determinist, I had a revelation about free will. You can't even say that. You might have to say, I was caused to have this revelation that was predetermined at the time of the Big Bang. And here I am having it. I have no choice about this revelation. I just have to passively accept it as it's coming down from the cosmos. So there's a built-in irony that we can talk about, about how determinism logically contradicts itself, um, which is a whole subject in the book and probably the essence of the flaw of determinism. I don't know if I answered your question. I was, I was roving yeah. around there exploring a few things like yeah. this no self-convention, but I'm, I'm convinced that somebody's going to make a lot of money promoting it. <laughs> and a lot of no cells or cells are going to show up depending on what you think. Hmm. So I think one of the most um, 
instinctual kind of arguments that can be made for the idea that you don't have free will is just, you know, this, this exercise of what is your next thought going to be and mm -hmm. noticing that it seems to come from nowhere and that it's kind of made in the dark. And this idea that if I were to ask you to name a celebrity, you did not list all the celebrities and kind of say that one, mm -hmm. literally a name, from the dark in your brain will pop mm -hmm. up in your brain. And so meditators are very aware of this because they spend so much time watching their brain. And so from that kind of um, intuition from meditation, they kind of make this argument that because so much is going on in the dark, and even when you feel like you're making a free decision, mm -hmm. why you made that decision is largely in the dark. Therefore, um, you're not, you're at least as not, not as free as you think you are. So where did, does that intuition make sense to you or where does that go off the rails for you or how do you relate to that? It goes off the rails in a number of respects. And this is one of Harris's core arguments and determinist core arguments. I don't mean to pick on Harris. I should make a footnote that we're talking about determinism as a broader theory. His book for me was a springboard into those issues, but they're not just his issues and he can't be blamed for, for a whole uh, perspective or outlook or framework. So I wanted to sort of lay that groundwork, but he does make a, an argument based on observation. And I think it goes wrong for several reasons. First of all, we sure we can observe our thoughts. We have the capacity to observe our thoughts and self-reflect, but that's one capacity among others. And as I say in the book, do a math problem or write a tune in your head or start to think about organizing something. We have other capacities besides observation. And determinists seems to seem to they look to the observational mode, the meditation mode, and we see our thoughts flow by. Um, and they forget the fact that that's one aspect of relating to our thoughts. The other side of it is active engagement, you know, thinking, the thinking process. In terms of knowing our next thought, we don't need to know our next thought to think it when we do. Why would we need to know our next thought? It's in the future. The future doesn't exist. So I found this argument rather strange and uncompelling from the beginning. The other problem with the argument is it's a bit hypocritical. We are having an experience of watching our thoughts. That's an experience. Harris and determinists appeal to an experience. Well, what about the experience of having free will? How, on what basis or criteria do you selectively take and experience the fact that we can observe our thoughts and say, well, I'm going to grab onto that one. Oh, it so happens to support determinism. Put that aside for a second. But we also have the experience of free will, of judging those thoughts that we appeal to pop up from wherever. And it's a very interesting and mysterious dynamic that we're playing all the time. We're appealing to this unknown void. What's the next sentence I write? What's that gonna look like? And then something we experience is popping up and then we experience judging it, thinking about it, altering it, changing it. You can't just look at half if you wanna divide it into rough halves of, of observation and active engagement of thought. If you look at it that way, you gotta talk about both halves. Yeah, it's very mysterious that these things pop up out of nowhere, are unconscious and so forth. But when they do pop up, what about the experience of manipulating and judging and thinking and modifying them? 
Yeah. Well, you have to look that... at both sides of the equation. You can't you yeah. uh, you can't have a privilege. I, I think I say in the book, it's a privileged experience. Observation becomes put on a pedestal for metaphysical representation of our thoughts and who we are and how we relate to them. Well, why? There's these other experiences that say otherwise. Tell me how you're going to distinguish them if you're looking to experience. Yeah, I think the argument, and, I'll, and then I'll let Bill talk. I think the argument and response is that even when you're, you know, rash, like trying, really trying to think about it and make a decision, and maybe you're even um, rating things on a piece, piece of paper and you're really grappling with it in real time, mm-hmm. um, even when you're in that space and you make a decision you know, why you made that decision and not the other mm-hmm. is still somewhat on the back of mystery, or at least, mm-hmm. you know, if I, you know, I chose to go into history instead of philosophy and, and there were, and I was really thinking about it, um, you know, when I was 18 and I ended up going into history, but it was so much related to, you know, this person I really respect really kind of nudged me that way. And, and so, the, fa- the fact that I consciously felt like I was making that decision still is at the back of at least somewhat of a mystery of why I did. So it would all still be in there. Yeah. And I don't think that all those levels of mystery, which I agree are all factors and influences that to me, doesn't take away the fact that you have free will within the parameters of all those influences. Those influences aren't making the decision. Oh, You're making the decision. Are you influenced by all kinds of things? Sure. Are you interested, influenced by all kinds of things you don't consciously understand in that moment? Sure. That doesn't mean that you're not exercising free will. It means that you're exercising free will within a context and parameters and history. One of the arguments that, that Harris says is that we have to completely control, and those are his words, completely control the background conditions of our life biology, neurophysiology, evolution, genetics. And I, I believe that determinists confuse influence and context within which we do have parameters where we exercise free will within boundaries and limits and constraints. They confuse that with causation and they're just two different things. Let's- and Harris says, well, we have to completely control everything. And the answer to that is why? Why would you have to exercise? I mean, first of all, con- completely controlling everything, you'd have to be God, right? You have to be omniscient and omnipotent. It's the only way that you can completely control everything that influences us. Well, nobody means that when they refer to free will. But determinists think that there's an idea that if we have any kind of limits or constraints, if we're inheriting our biology or a physical platform called our bodies, that that defeats free will. I don't see any argument on the basis of which it does. And what they need to address is is the difference between influence and causation and why having a bodily platform that constrains us into sight and sounds and a visual realm that animals can go beyond and an auditory realm that animals can hear, we can't hear. That constrains us. There are limits and boundaries, but they are influences. That doesn't mean we're caused by the parameters within which we have to work. And I don't ever hear that addressed. Yeah, I, I want to dig into that a little bit. And this conversation, again, I'm I'm not adequate enough at this topic that I'm going to be able to demonstrate the other side of the argument. So I want to tackle it from a different angle. 
So what we seem to be speaking of here is how limited our free will is. Like it's not libertarian free will for sure. It's something less than it has constraints on it. It's heavily influenced by our environment, our history. And so the conversation starts to get into how limited it is. And, and let me start with a couple of thoughts. So Robert Sapolsky in his book, Behave, which I thought was phenomenal, pretty dry, but phenomenal at showing a bazillion ways in which we don't comprehend how influential our history and environment is. And I'll give a couple of example examples. Um, he talked about how when somebody is up for parole, that the biggest indicator for whether the judge will parole that uh, criminal or not uh, mm -hmm. is whether that whether that judge has eaten in the last two to three hours, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't think in our heads. We don't think in our heads as we, again, everybody listening to this conversation, I, I will say on David's behalf and Sam Harris's behalf, there are deeply intelligent, articulate people who are well-informed on both sides of the issue. Mm -hmm. I think the issue is one that neither side can really prove one way or the other. And so we're playing in this space of like, what good points can we make on each side and allow people to make an informed decision? So the other one I wanted to show was the, um, they had people that were answering um, questionnaires about controversial social topics. And during a controlled experiment, they had a, um, a control group and then they had the group that they were kind of testing. And in the group that they were testing, they allowed some barely noticeable foul odor into the room mm -hmm. and people were 60% more likely to be conservative than the control group when they could barely mm -hmm. notice a foul smell. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and Sapolsky goes through thousands and thousands of these in his book where mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it becomes, and again, I'm sorry, this question will take a minute to set up mm -hmm. um, thousands and thousands of things that we don't even know on a daily basis that affect why we decide to do or not do, or mm -hmm. why we make the choice in one direction and not in the other. And, most of the folks in my circle of influence, when I get into this topic, the folks who are educated on it, play in this space of going, there's no free will, or there's the folks who believe in free will, but they go, it is so limited because mm -hmm. you aren't even aware of how much your history, your genetics, and your life experience, mm -hmm. uh, the biology, all of it plays into this. Mm -hmm. So I guess my, my, little question with all of that setup is how limited do you personally feel that free will is knowing because i know you're familiar with sapolsky i know you're familiar with this argument of mm -hmm. how much stuff influences us how where do you come down on how limited our ability to choose is i don't think there's an answer to that question and i don't say that to be a dodge i i i it, it, I am familiar with Sapolsky and I even quote him in the book for a slightly different purpose about genetics. But I think we have to start with the presupposition that this is influence and determinants are constantly confusing influence with control and causation. There's, there's, there's in that framework, there's a chicken and the egg kind of thing going on here. I mean, do people, um, sentence people more because they're having lunch or, or, or do they uh, decide at some unconscious level to defer their lunch because they, they want to have a clear mind and then there's a blood sugar aspect to that and we're certainly influenced by our physical platform, our bodies and our blood sugar 
But our but but if you're a, a free will person, you would say, well, yes, but that's also influenced by a lot of decisions. So there's a sort of a ping ponging back and forth. You can't just isolate blood sugar at a certain point. What were the decisions that led up to, to you having low blood sugar? And we could certainly influence our bodies by drinks or depriving us of food or the need to stay alert because you're hypoglycemic like I am and the food takes you for a dive in the wrong direction when your insulin goes. I, I, so there's a very selectivity in context in which Sapolsky's asking that question. And at the end of the day, those are all influences. And I don't think free will people need to deny those influences. They can say, yeah, we sure are influenced by hunger, but that doesn't mean we don't decide. It doesn't even mean those judges aren't uh, cranky judges who haven't yet had their cheeseburgers aren't making decisions when the within parameters of being extremely irritated because there's this source of hunger, which a prior decision of theirs may well have created. I'm going to defer my breakfast this morning or I'm going to eat carbohydrates and because I like them instead of protein. And now this is the result of the blood sugar from the carbohydrates. So I, I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but part of the answer is influence versus causation. And part of the answer is taking a context, a very limited context. And I think the other part of the answer is the chicken and the egg. What about all the decisions that preceded that cranky blood sugar in which they are sentencing these people? Yeah, can yeah, that, and that, another, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it, it reminds me of an argument of, of Dan Dennett's argument, which is that we, because we have greater and less freedom, so a heroin addict is very limited in freedom, a child is more limited than a teen, is more limited than an adult. So if we can kind of mm -hmm. measure, mm -hmm. if you can have more or less of something, then it has to exist, is kind of his shorthand argument, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and the, the determinist would say, well, Dan, I mean, your idea that it's short and we're balancing this and that, that's all determined by that causal chain, too. It doesn't matter what distinctions you want to make. You yeah. were predestined to make those distinctions. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where Sam Harris and Dan would, would collide. Um, but I have I'm going to shift a little bit here because something that comes up, the most interesting uh, thing that I think Dan Dennett said on this, um, who's someone who's written about free will as well, is that. When someone, when, when people, and these studies are new, so, you know, mm -hmm. we may not, this may mm -hmm. not be a great sampling, mm -hmm. but when people find out and are convinced that they don't have free will, there tends to be a drop in morality, which mm -hmm. I think is just fascinating. So even if it were true, let's say that in the next 20 years, we learn so much about consciousness that we find out there really is no free will and just we however science would prove that we've proved that um it may be possible that believing that or that 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 idea may be too dangerous to talk about because mm -hmm. when you believe that the universe just kind of created you and whatever you were going to do you were already going to do all of a sudden you're at the you know the self-checkout machine and think i can just slide this in there and the universe did it right and so there actually can be a drop in morality. Um, and there's also, and, and some people find this actually really psychologically um, debilitating. They find it kind of, ooh, I, I'm starting to feel like I'm on the edge of insanity with this thing. So if it were true, let's say, in, a, in some scientific way that we didn't have free will, 
do you think that it's just more useful of a truth to believe that we are conscious agents anyway? There's several questions in there and I'm trying to unravel which one to do first. Let, let me take one step back and comment to something Bill said, which is that uh, the kind of free will I'm talking about in response to this question and everything else is libertarian free will. The fact that we have terrible influences, terrible, pervasive, profound, strong, not always known or conscious influences doesn't mean we don't have a, a, a very radical version, radical in the sense that free will can be defined in more modest ways. And what I'm suggesting, Bill, is that, that the idea that we have libertarian free will, that we can make choices independent of the prior state of the universe, we're not constrained by pure physicality and what our quarks are doing and bouncing around, uh, is a libertarian form of free will. And I don't think that's, that's affected by all of the influences that you were talking about. And no matter how they sort of bear on us and constrain us, that doesn't mean we don't have libertarian free will within the parameters of those influences. I wanted to clarify that because it's easy to say that, to think that because you're constraining and reducing down to very little and your question about how, how much do we have is hard to answer, partly because of the context, but it doesn't mean that we don't have the most radical sense of free will. Dan Dennett is a compatibilist who has a notion of free will that nobody agrees with or believes in, in common sense or in the traditional wording. He, he, and I'm with Harris on this one. He's eviscerated the idea, as all compatibilists do. They've eviscerated the whole idea of free will. So they don't believe that we can do whatever we want, uh, regardless of, of our physicality and what's going on inside our bodies and the causal chain. So um, you, would, you would say the people who are trying to make, like they see the arguments of libertarian free will, they see mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. no free will arguments and they're, and the space that they're trying to make in between is a compatibilist. You would say that that was mental gymnastics. You would say that that's not a sustainable ground. Yes, I would say it's, it's, it's uh, pretty much what Harris says about it. It's, it's nonsense. It's compromising the idea of free will to squeeze it into a, a deterministic framework, and then you lose the libertarian part of it. Right, that free will can be so limited that it really isn't free will anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and I'm arguing that it can be as limited as you want. It depends on the context, of course. It depends on the person and the context and the history and their background and the circumstances to say how much free will do they have, how much influence because we can be kings in our, a certain domain where we're confident and knowledgeable and have a track record. We could be kings in that domain and have a fair amount of free will. And then we can, in another domain that we fail at constantly, uh, we just can't get that bowling ball down the, the, the alley to hit them pins. So a lot, so part of the reason why it's hard to answer your question is that it's very context dependent. And what I'm saying, in effect, it's not about quantity. It's about something else. It's about an innate capacity that you have or you don't have at some level, no matter how much it's compromised in any given circumstance. So then how would you then relate this to consciousness? Because a lot of this, I think, gets lost in just consciousness is just so mysterious and we just understand so little about it. So would you say that 
um, consciousness is an essential quality of the universe and all conscious creatures are on some level free like free agents within their limitations of course of mm -hmm. of you know mm -hmm. if they have a nervous system and all those things i think so and and part of the reason i think so is is this idea that determinism is incoherent it makes no sense and logically contradicts itself um, I think I can, I mean, this, this, this sounds like boisterous, bo bo boisterous. Well, it is boisterous, but also boast, boastering is if that's such a word, but it's not my idea. This, uh, the idea that I find extremely compelling that you can prove that we're not, that, that we're not determined. And I have a whole chapter in it. So I, I, I think it can be logically uh, proven that we that we're not determined if not scientifically i don't think it can ever be scientifically determined that we don't have uh, free will harris has a, a example he gives of a machine that in the future predicts everything we think and do 10 seconds before we have them the the thought or take the action and that this would be the ultimate prediction machine and it would prove that we don't have free will and that's complete nonsense and it's complete nonsense because it's illogical. If a machine proves that we don't have free will, why? how would that not be a thought that the machine was also putting in our heads that we don't have free will? The problem, the problem is that it's assuming that we can know the truth about the machine and the data and the operator being uh, uh, conscientious and we can interpret what the data means and all that kind of stuff that we have to give meaning to and interpret. Well, if the machine says we don't interpret anything, we don't know what's true, we just know what we're caused to believe true by this causal chain, then we can't know anything about the machine or whether it's true. Maybe the findings really say that every Tuesday we don't have free will and every Wednesday we do. We wouldn't know because the machine's right. making us believe what the machine's findings are. Let's bring in your arguments about neuroscience because part of your argument of where Sam Harris goes off the, the rails is that mm -hmm. he's misinterpreting some of the neuroscience studies mm -hmm. and, and really missing what's going mm -hmm. on here. And so mm -hmm. um, the one that comes to mind is like you mess with people's brains and you, they'll, you'll kind of force them or I, I don't remember how they do this. I think it was a split brain study, but their hand will dip in water and you'll ask them why they did that. And they'll just automatically let, make up a lie because their brain is kind of like looking for a reason why they did that. Um, and do any of those kind of, so, so go into those neuroscience studies that especially that Sam cites and how he's missed something in those studies. Sure. He's missed a lot of things, about a half dozen things. Before I go there, let me just say he doesn't talk about the studies you were just talking about. But the fact that you can cut a brain up and send neural impulses and cut the lobes in half and all that says nothing about free will. Absolutely nothing. It just says that we have a biology that we're built on a bodily platform and you can manipulate that platform in a way that has influence in consciousness. What does that have to do with free will? Nothing. So I just wanted to frame that their influences, nobody, no free will advocates going to deny that if you cut our head open and put an electrode in there and shoot some impulses that there's going to affect consciousness. So unless, unless you could show that it's all influence. In other words, for instance, just as an example, and I think his example is not a, the greatest one because I think it kind of tricks your mind 
into seeing the problem from a certain angle. Um, but when Sam Harris uses the idea of come up with any city in your mind that you can think mm-hmm. of, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody, you know, you think of a city and then he explains to you why you couldn't have thought of all the cities you'd never learned. You couldn't have thought of the cities your brain didn't remind you of. Mm-hmm. You, The cities you did think of, there are reasons for. Mm-hmm. And as I, again, um, I don't believe there's free will, but again, I respect the argument on the other side. It seems apparent to me that everything about why I do things the way I do, that if I think deeply enough about it, I can come up with how I'm influenced to think that way. So for the reasons for the foods I like, the foods I don't like, the sports I like, the teams and sports, all of it. And so my hunch is my inner intuition is that we are influenced on all of it. And we don't even know it. Again, the 60% with being conservative because of the smell, the judges eating within the last two to three hours impacting their decision. We can figure out some of the reasons why we do things the way we do them. And the further we go in time and the more research there's done in neuroscience, it seems like we can keep expanding what those influences are. And my hunch is that if we could extrapolate that out all the way to the end, we would recognize that all of it is influence. And there's not any real moment where you're in your head and you really could choose A or could choose B and you just so happen to choose A. But the reason, again, if we get underneath it all, the reason we choose A is that all the things that came before Mm -hmm. in that moment, we chose A and we couldn't have done anything else but that. Even though in our heads we think we're we have the option to do something different. But what is the evidence that you couldn't do something different? You could take all of those influences and still say, look, we're terribly influenced by factors we know and we don't know. That doesn't mean you don't decide not to have the chocolate ice cream. You love chocolate ice cream and you can't help the fact that you like it. That's a given. Your taste buds respond favorably when they come into contact with powdered cocoa plant or something. So what? You could still choose not to have it. You could choose to have a lesser proportion. You could choose to go to rehab and program yourself out of liking chocolate ice cream by messing with your neurons. So it part of your argument comes back to the, the concept of influence versus uh, uh, causation or control. Second thing is, and this goes back to your question, Britt, there's no science test that proves anything about free will versus determinism. And I'll I'll go into the three tests now. So, so Bill, when you say that um, all this science, we're getting closer and closer, we're getting closer by people who are misreporting these findings and not reading what they say. Um, To sort of lay the groundwork for the findings, um, they put uh, a machine, various different kinds, um, MRI and so forth that monitor what's going on in your head and certain lobes of the brain. Typically it's the motor cortex. That's how it all started in 1983 with a guy named Libet, 83-84. And they noticed that right prior to um, a conscious decision, there's a little blip of neural activity. Okay. Now, then Libet didn't even interpret, by the way, this is causation. He said the brain initiates or has a part in initiating a decision, which is has, <laughs> it's not causation. If you think about it, he didn't say 
your decisions are controlled by those neural impulses. But that's how it's been interpreted. Uh, that's one of the tests. Harris doesn't mention the fact, well, he does in a footnote for a different purpose, that Libet, Libet reversed course in a, a, another series of studies that said we can veto decisions that are made at that point when that little blip starts. Very important point. The other studies he, he refers to as a Haynes study. Um, the Haynes study found a 60% correlation between that, the blip that they were studying and, and our subsequent conscious decision and movement. Uh, well, 60% doesn't get you very far. That certainly doesn't prove that there's a cause. Why isn't it happening the other 40% of the time? Haynes concludes and says, you know, this is just a correlation. It doesn't say anything about causation. And we can't draw any conclusions based on a 60%. He says barely above a coin toss. So you have a determinist, Harris, referring to a study. And the study, can, uh, for the point of view that, that our, these neural impulses in our brain cause our uh, conscious decision and then cause the motor action based on that decision. And the study itself uh, says, no, that's not what happens. These are just correlations and who knows what they mean. And they're certainly not enough to, to have any evidence of causation. The third study is Freed. Uh, Freed's a very interesting study. It says that 256 neurons can, can predict uh, a decision. And the word predict is a real trap. You can predict something if it's 55% and you're predicting it and you're more often right than wrong. And a lot of these studies uh, announce their headline uh, conclusion in the beginning that we can predict neural, we can predict decisions in advance. But then when you look at the actual prediction rate, 60%, 75%, 80%, I go a bit into Haynes less than I really wanted to because it gets a little technical, but it was based on four subjects. There was a group of 12, but actually when you read in the back in the supplemental materials, only four had electrodes planted in the places that they were doing. And two thirds of the uh, data came from two subjects. All right, two subjects are now going to give us a science for metaphysical revelations about the nature of consciousness and man, are you kidding? And by the way, the correlations were 65%. There's an 80% correlation in the headlines. 80% is not enough for causation, by the way. Under like conditions, what the hell is happening the other 20% of the time? But when you look at some of the statistics they cite by subject and by test, it turns out to be 65%. And the 80% is based on some complicated neuropopulation stuff that's, that's, that, that, that the articles don't report going into it. He did a, a, a free did a hand choice. You get to choose which hand or the other. We can predict volitional content. The headline announces on the thing. But when you read the well, what's the prediction rate? 60 percent, 65 percent back in the supplemental materials that ain't up front in the headline. So uh, and by the way, there are other tests that like Haynes that do concede in the headlines that this is not indicative of causation. And even Freed at the very end, I say this in the book, his conclusions are far more sober than these we can predict things because you can predict something. You can predict something 52% of the time. You're more, you're more likely to be right than not. It has nothing to do with causation, has nothing to do with free will. So Freed concludes that, that these uh, neural impulses and decisions, that the, the jury's out, and what they mean, whether they're anything beyond correlations, 
don't jump to, I'm paraphrasing, don't jump to think that they have anything to do with, with causation. Now, the other thing I need to, so, 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 so sort of that's the pod which says none of these tests say what Harris says. None of these tests say what uh, determinists say. And you can read a whole bunch of them and they'll all say, we can predict. And then you go and see the predictive rate. Oh, really? I can predict my car will turn on more often than you can predict the neural impulses. The other important thing about these science tests, and this is conceded by everyone, including the authors of these tests, is their, their data isn't credible. All of these tests have been discredited for one reason, which is they all rely, the key measurement is the moment of conscious decision. When do the subjects looking at a clock and trying to remember the rules and seeing the guy over there who's going to judge if they do wrong and they got to get to lunch before because they're, they're, they're smelling something funny too, by the way. This funny smell, it may be my litter box. I may be too if I get cranky. But, but they have all kinds of distractions. And, and guess what? The time interval that these tests are measuring are two-tenths of a second, three-tenths of a second. Three, th 350 milliseconds between our, our, uh, that first little blip of, of, of beginning of the rise and our conscious decision. That's less than a third of a second. I'm sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't. No, you're good. I'm just, I'm yelling at oh, my okay. kid in the background. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so okay. the point being that every one of these tests says the point of conscious decision cannot be determined with any kind of accuracy. Now that's a central measurement of the test. 350 milliseconds before a conscious decision. If you think about, okay, I'm gonna make a decision now. Oh, I'm gonna wait until, okay, there it is. Excuse me, 200 milliseconds before I move, 350 milliseconds. Every one of these tests says that it's, it's unreliable. And if you're off by a two tenths of a second, the results are completely different. That 80% plunges to, to whatever. It's even said in Haynes. It's said in Freed. It's said in Harris, but for a different purpose in a footnote. The, a number of studies have done tests of how easily subjects can accurately say when the moment of conscious decision happens. A dozen tests say that they can't for all kinds of reasons. Priming beforehand, noises after the fact, distractions and all this. The central findings of all these tests are discredited by the methodology that they cannot determine accurately the moment of decision. As this is why, yeah, this by is these why, tests. This is why I go back to this idea that sometimes this debate is almost really religious more than scientific in the sense that if you're an Eastern philosopher, you're really, you're really intense with the idea that your ego or the sense that you're you know driving a car behind your eyes is an illusion and there's you know there's a bunch of spiritual stuff going on there and then you know the ben shapiro types really want there to be a soul with libertarian free will because god only makes sense in that and so it's almost like both sides because the science is just it's young and it's um it's it's a little bit all over the place and it's not conclusive that each side is is cherry picking the science that they need when really it's almost like a religious argument at the base of it because each side kind of has a dog in the fight right the the sam harris types you know the meditation and the dissolve the ego have their dog in the fight and then the religious people have their soul dog in the fight and that's really why people care about it but it's not determinist. Or I agree with everything you said, but to wrap up the science test, I'm not being selective. 
the determinists are being selective. There's not a single test you can read, even the most pro-determinist sounding tests like free, that proves anything about causation or free will. There's not a single test that proves anything but a percentage, barely above chance, at the very top 80%, which is not causal in any respect. There's not a single test that proves causation. There's not a single test that demonstrates causation. They demonstrate correlations within a very narrow context of motor decisions. And by the way, that's another criticism that's been leveled at the test. Even if there was some correlation between these neural impulses and moving your finger, which there isn't, no test correlates them in any causal sense, none. And that's not selective. Even so, what does that have to do with, with uh, deciding what's your spiritual tradition or your deconstructionist ways? These are, this has nothing to do with complicated, everyday, emotionally invested. These are little tiny decisions. Even giving them the fact that there's a causal uh, architecture, which there is not, according to every single test done. Yeah. I, I think, think the headlines and the articles, you know, they, they, they take all of this and say, hey, we're determined. Read the test. The test yeah. proved that we're not determined. That I, I think I, I think this is a great opportunity to bring up what I think is one of your best arguments, which is um, why entanglements is a problem for determinists. Mm -hmm. And entanglements, I got to mm -hmm. tell you, I've, I've heard of this stuff before you were talking about it. And if there was a genie that could grant me like 10 questions, I mm -hmm. swear to God, this would be one of the questions because this like has always blown my mind and been super fascinating to me. So can you kind of explain what's going on with the, with the entanglement thing and why that's a problem? Because I think this would be a good opportunity for you to go into that. It blows the mind of every physicist. The top physicists in the world don't understand what it is. So don't, don't feel mushroom alone. mushroom people <laughs> are totally on board with this because you take ayahuasca and everybody goes on a shared experience and that makes total sense to them. So the only people that it makes sense to are the people who do too many mushrooms. Uh, well, a lot of things make sense to them that doesn't to the rest of the people. Oh, <laughs> okay. Is he on them now or is he just? No, no. I, I try <laughs> to keep a clear mind for, uh, for the interviews. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I'm on them by the way, just, just to full disclosure. Um, uh, the, the issue, the generic issue you're talking about is does causation govern the universe? Determinists think it's a machine and and everything's been set at the Big Bang and everything has a cause and everything's mechanistic and everything's a clockwork universe. What entanglement does in the big picture, and then I can come back to you know, a smaller picture of what it is or what what scientists scientists don't know what it is, but we come back to that. Uh, entanglement is one of those things that defy causation. It's been proven to defy causation. Entangled phenomena don't, no, no causal explanation, no causal concept can define uh, entanglement. It doesn't behave according and you, to And can you define for people what's going on with entanglement, what that means? Yeah, sure. They, they can create, uh, and nature creates particles that are entangled together, that what happens with one happens with another. The standard view of how you influence something is that you're in contact physically with something, boom, even if it's a field or what have you, there's physical contact and that's what influences things, whether it's molecules or atoms or fists or whatever, there has to be local physical contact. So in entangled particles, you can send them to the moon, you can send them galaxies apart. And when you measure something here, 
the other thing is going to be opposite. And what you measure here isn't a function of having been created in the past. It's created in that measurement based on the angle that the, the, that the scientist decides to measure at that moment. And something happens galaxies away all the time, you know, 100% of the time based on a, a, a spontaneous event over here that can't be known over there in any known in any sense. It absolutely known. blows my mind. Like, absolutely. Like, it, it would be it, it one of my top, maybe mind. even top five questions for like a genie who could answer any of my questions because it's, well, so, nobody can answer it's it. so interesting. It is. Well, you know about quantum tunneling? No. Oh, no. Are you going to blow it my brain is, right it, now? Yeah, well, it's, it, it sits up there with entanglement. It's, it's the other kind of bizarre thing. You, uh, you can shoot, have molecules go through absolutely solid barriers that cannot be penetrated molecularly under Newtonian science and all that stuff. And they can tunnel right through in one second and end up on the other side. They cannot get through physically. It's impossible and they end up on the other side. And it, uh, it, uh, it's a very important thing, because I said in the book, it powers the sun. Actually, the sun is a whole bunch of tunneling processes in, in quantum physics. The way quantum physics explains it is that the probability curve of something almost doesn't drop to zero at any given point that you think it's going to. So whether a particle can get through a solid wall that it cannot get through in any way, the, the slope down of probabilities doesn't go to zero until it's on the other side of the wall. So there's some tiny, tiny, minuscule, crazy remote possibility that that one or two or whatever will appear on the other side of the wall. Do they go through the wall? Who knows? Do they wink out of here and wink over there? Who knows? Uh, but they get on the other side of the wall and they can't be there. And if you have enough of these things going on all over the universe, including in, in, in the sun, they're going to happen all the time. So the idea of physical impenetrability and molecular uh, penetrability, just look, what happens? Does the wall lose the mass and the guys shoot through for a second? Excuse me, I'm coming through. Or do they wink out? So it's one of those things. And the, the, the importance to the free will debate is that all of these quantum things take a chip out of the idea that we live in a mechanistic universe that follows that influences physical, that even the universe isn't physical anymore. That's, that's a big open question. And determinism relies on causation, which relies on contact, physical transfer of energy or what, what have you. So it's another chip that says we don't necessarily live in a causal universe. Now, some scientists say, oh, we do, and we don't understand the mechanisms, and one day in the future we will. But, but it's been proven that uh, by a guy named John Bell in a theory called Bell's Theorem, which is really one of the most important parts of quantum physics. If you haven't heard it, take a look at it. But basically, he proved by a statistical, very clever sampling that entanglement cannot be explained by causation. It violates causal law. There's different percentages than what would happen as if they were determined in advance by causal law under local conditions. So something, the, the point of all of this is that something is happening in the universe other than causation. We don't live in a purely mechanistic universe. And that's what free will needs to get that wedge. If there's no wedge into that Newtonian causal chain, free will's over. Well, there's all kinds of wedges. Um, Lawrence Krauss, have you heard of him? He's, he's a physicist, has a great podcast and all. 
he wrote a book that something like uh, something from nothing, not exactly that, some, a universe from nothing. And um, hang on one second here while I decline that call with my free will or my causal chain, as it may be. And, and he talks about virtual particles. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to turn off my phone. Um, Apple phones often defy my free will, by the way. I have to restart them and reboot them. And my free will is extremely limited by, by, by this phone. Sometimes uh, texts don't go. Sometimes they do, but we won't go again. And again, those are influences. Anyway, I go through sort of like the five steps of, 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 of uh, breaking this causal chain that ends up with crazy quantum stuff like entanglement. And there's a famous quote, I'm sure you've heard it by Richard Feynman, one of the top physicists ever, brilliant mind. He says, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. And he's talking to scientists. He's saying, I don't understand. I'm a, he's the preeminent, one of the preeminent physicists of his generation. He says, I don't have a clue as to how this stuff works or what it means or what it says about reality. Maybe in a hundred or a thousand years, we will. But what we do know is this. It says we don't live in a mechanical causal universe. And there's a lot of other physics reasons that I go into the book besides quantum physics. Bottom line is something else is going on. And it, and it ain't causality. And it's been proven by science. So the first thing you need to do if you're a determinist, I say this, if you want to build a whole theory on causation that the universe is causal, you better damn well start justifying what causation means. Because science has said, hold on, something else is going on, at least under a number of conditions, at the, at the very least. So what other conditions? Lawrence Krauss, things come from nothing. Empty space isn't empty space anymore. Something called virtual particles, which happen billions of times every moment, are coming out of empty space. There is nothing there. Two particles materialize and they annihilate each other within some tiny time frame. Where are they coming from? They're coming from nowhere. There's no prior cause. There's nothing there to be a prior cause. So again, this is another example of how physics has gotten to a point where they've unearthed phenomena that we don't understand. We don't understand the mechanism because it isn't a causal mechanism, but we can understand it's not causal. So all this stuff, big picture, Newtonian vision of a robotic causal universe has to be justified as the first premise of determinism. They don't justify it. They skip past it. They don't talk about the problems with causation. And yet the entire theory is based on causation governs the universe or governs most of it. They admit that there's some random events here and there that happen within that causal matrix. Now, there's, uh, I, I don't know how much time we have, but there's one final, the death knell of of determinism that we haven't talked about. Do you want yeah, to? Yeah, I'd love. A, yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Okay, I have alluded it to, to it a couple of times. Um, um, there's no such thing as truth in a determinist universe. A determinist says our thoughts are causally compelled. We don't control them. I'm not in control of my thoughts. Now, how do they know that's true if they're not in control of their thoughts? They don't. They can't know it. They're saying, they're making a truth claim. We are determined. But the truth claim that they're making says that you have no idea what you're thinking 
and you don't control what you're thinking, you have no idea if it corresponds to truth. The concept of truth, where does that come from? It's a compelled thought by physical forces in a causal chain. So they're contradicting themselves. There's a contradiction at the heart of every determinist yeah. principle. Let me, let me, so let me ask you this so that I can explain it. So what sure. I understand from that argument is that, um, is that if you were to sit me in front of a YouTube video and people, this has happened to people, and you were to explain, let's say that the earth is flat and there's all these YouTube videos explaining how the earth is flat and very like not dumb people have gotten caught in these YouTube rabbit holes. And at some point in the brain, and you don't know when the dominoes fall and you say, oh, I think that the, I think that the earth is flat or whatever the idea, it doesn't even have to be absurd, mm -hmm. even your mathematical instincts. And so, you know, when Bill and I are talking or we're debating someone on a podcast or I'm listening to people, I have no idea in a sense when the argument is going to go. I believe this and now I believe this, like the dominoes in my head had fallen completely in the dark. And mm -hmm. so so help me understand if that's my uh, intuition or experience, how does that fit what you're saying? I'm having trouble for a second. The world isn't flat. I, 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 nobody told me about that. I have to absorb that a second. People have a lot of crazy beliefs. And we all know people who are really super smart who say the craziest things often about politics or morality or God or something. And these are very smart people. Um, so... You know, there's no accounting for what people believe. I, we have to do the best we can based on our knowledge and instincts and open mindedness and everything like that. You're, you're ping ponging when you hear people. That's great because you're open to exploring and you're not locked into a, you know, absolute position. You're, you're, you're testing ideas. I think that's fantastic. But the, the, the determinist um, says we're determined. And yeah, so the determinist would say there was, if you could get down to all of the arguments in my head and all of my beliefs and my brain structure, mm -hmm. then you could see, ah, that was the moment when the dominoes fell and you changed your mind and you weren't really in control of that. And so mm -hmm. fr your free will wasn't there when you believed this, but it also wasn't there when you believed that because you weren't in control of any of those dominoes falling in your brain. But that's a question and, and that's a conclusion. And the question is, what what is the evidence for that? And and there this thing, this logical contradiction called a performative contradiction. If you want to look it up, it's kind of fun because it's like it's statements that contradict themselves, like nobody knows anything. Wait a second. Then you can't know anything. So how can you say that? Yeah. So there's a lot of fun ones like that. Um, and I, I mentioned some of them in the book. And there's some political ones, too, Marx, Marxist kind of ones. That, uh, our beliefs are just a reflection of our class. Oh, really? Well, that belief must be a reflection of your class. So you just disqualified yourself from being objective. So, uh, in a similar, so in a similar way, every determinist is saying, I don't know what's true. I'm going to tell you a truth claim. But my philosophy is I'll only reason I'm not saying that based on truth. I'm saying that because I was causally forced to say it. So they discredit all truth. 
They invalidate all truth claims because it's all reduced to what we're made to believe, but we're made to think true by this causal chain of physical forces. We're forced to think what we think is true. So when they tell us what's true, they've already disqualified themselves from knowing anything that's true and they've disqualified truth. Yeah, I've, truth I've heard Sam Harris. I've heard Sam Harris's response to this, which is that I'm counting on you not having free will because at some point the, you know, he believes, at least he believes his argument is well-founded enough in science that eventually because you don't have free will, if I give you enough information, you'll change your mind because you don't have free will. So I've, I've seen him make that well, move. Yeah. And that's the silliest thing I ever heard a determinist say. And I have a, a whole chapter in the book, how determinists import free will ideas. How can he influence anyone if it was all determined back at the Big Bang? That's a free will. See, I don't I think it doesn't I, even have any validity in the I'm sorry, in a determinist world. He can't influence you to change your mind. He can't do anything to change your mind. He can't even change what he's saying to you because it's all been predetermined. So he's secretly, and he's not the only one who do this. Uh, Sapolsky does it all the time. He says, oh, we're all normally determined. Show me a neuron that just can fire on its own. And then when you ask him about morality, he says, well, we have to lock up, you know, crazy people. We can't let them hurt other people. It's like, really? Who's going to lock them up? I thought everything we do was caused. I thought you had no control over what you do. Now you're counseling people to lock people up. Well, wait a second. It's predetermined, according to you, whether we're going to lock people up. It depends on how your yeah. neurons they would, are firing. They would say we should still lock them up, but we should do it compassionately. Yeah. And the answer to that is you can't say that. Your, your neurons are telling you to say that. There's no truth behind that. You can say that, but according to your own philosophy, you're just saying it because there was all these neurons firing. So you, you, you're discrediting yourself. You're discrediting any truth claim that you can make. And the idea that Harris is saying, I'm going to convince you is absurd. He can't convince anyone of anything. What happened to the world being predetermined? Predetermined means you can't change anyone or anything. Why, why, why does that mean that? Yeah, yeah why, I don't, why does I don't, that I can't mean get that? There. I'm, I'm, Predetermined? Let me, yeah. let me can you mind if I throw an analogy in, Britt? So at one point, human beings didn't have fire. They didn't even know what fire was, right? And one day lightning strikes out in the Serengeti and a fire starts. And as whatever species we were, when that moment happened, we got close to that fire and we noticed it had heat. At some point, somebody scratches a rock by throwing it or whatever. And it makes a spark like things, new, new things happen that cause new thoughts in our mind that now lead us to new discovery we, we certainly can be influenced. So while I, I understand the argument that Sam Harris and this idea of determinism, how in the heck could he ever influence anybody when everybody it's already determined what they're going to do. But I don't think that's the argument he's making. I think he's saying, look, we're a product of everything that came before, but I can speak out loud about my life experience mm -hmm. and my life experience is going to fill in blind spots that you have. And hence, when I have a conversation with you and share my data that you don't have, you suddenly now are capable of a new thought, mm -hmm. a new idea, and that can influence the, the decision you make next that you couldn't have made had you not had that information. Mm -hmm. And I still see that that can all work within determinism just fine. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that, that's not what Harris says. And um, I can see why you would think so, because he uses a lot of what I call free will speak to cheat and import uh, free will ideas, just like Sapolsky and all the other determinists, where there's, it's not permitted. There's, um, if you look at his book, there's a, a, a statement that says all of our behavior, all of our thoughts were set at the Big Bang. And that's, I, I, I think maybe we need to talk for half a second about predetermination, because what it means is that everything you're ever going to think, this is what determinism means, everything that you're ever going to think and every bit of knowledge that you think you have or you think you're gaining with the fire, that's all been set. It's just a movie that's already been shot that's, that's unspooling on the screen. You can't do anything to change it. You can't influence anything. Any experience that you're influencing something is just another predetermined thought that was set, in Harris's words, set at the Big Bang. So yeah, you yeah, don't, I don't I don't know that that again I'm I don't I'm not trying to be rude or anything I just I don't think my intuition says that's not the argument and when I frame his argument the way I I think he's portraying it it seems mm -hmm. to make a lot more rational sense to me and and I'm a little worried that on some level maybe we're creating a straw man about what what he's saying um I want to be, I want to be fair for certainly, but let me, let me give an example. So sexual cannibalism in insects. Uh, there are insects out there that when the females mate, they immediately carry or kill the, the male spider or whatever. Uh -huh. And generation after generation after generation, these insects carry out behaviors and those behaviors are going to happen whether they make sense or not. And whatever their evolutionary reason is for doing it, they don't really comprehend that. They're just doing the thing they do. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, as evolution occurs and as something becomes closer to human, the, the mind that we have becomes much more complex. The thinking that we have becomes much more complex. Mm -hmm. But all we've, all we've gained the ability to do is still carry out animalistic behaviors, except now we have a consciousness that can apply a narrative to it. And so when... When the science shows like a decision's made 300 milliseconds before the conscious mind knows it made it and why, that makes sort of sense to me because we were doing these same behaviors long before we had the, the ability to think complex thoughts about them and long before we had the ability to tell a narrative about them. And hence, here we are in 2023, and as a human being with a complex mind, I can apply story and narrative to all the things that I do. But I've been doing those things on some level. I've been doing those things, mm -hmm. sex, violence, dancing, music, what, whatever. I've been doing all those things on some level long before I had the ability to think complex thoughts about them and to tell narrative stories about them. And so it makes sense to me that this, the, mm -hmm. the story we tell about why we do the things we do would mm -hmm. certainly come after the actual whatever, the actual biology of doing the thing that we're going to do. Well, I, I don't mean to be contentious, but to go back to the science test, no science test says that the decision is made by these neurons before we do what we do. That's the misnomer that Harris is propagating about them. No science test says it. I, I make a lot of references to the science test that Wikipedia has. If you look up Libet, it will give you all the a, a huge number of subsequent tests. 
almost all of them are available online without paying some scholarly fee. Some of them you have we'll, to. We'll add them to the if show you notes. Read, if you read every conclusion, there's not a single one that says how you just characterize them. But how you characterize them is the popular view that's going around. It's completely inaccurate. Okay, let's go to the other thing. Uh, Harris's, you, you could, I quote a whole bunch of, it's someplace in the book, I quote, here's what Harris says. And he says, all behavior was set at the Big Bang. Your fire behavior, your thoughts, and there's other, many other quotes. Your, your thoughts were set. They're predetermined. You are following uh, a causal chain that was predetermined since the Big Bang. He says it in 18 different ways, and I quote maybe four, five, six quotes at, in the chapter talking about that. Um, so don't trust me. Go, go look at the book, and if you want, it's a very short book. Write down every time he says your thoughts are determined, your actions are determined, our behavior was set at the Big Bang. Um, he gives the impression otherwise in using his uh, free will speak, where he imports. So I understand why you're getting this impression. It is a misimpression. If, if you, you'll find 12 statements where he says you have no control of your thoughts, you're just thinking what you were predetermined to think. The problem with his book and the presentation, and, and, and Sapolsky and all the determinists, is that they, uh, Sabine Hassenfelder does the same thing. I'm thinking of doing a little uh, YouTube video on, on how silly the stuff she has. And they, by the way, these are great minds and great physicists. But when they hit the subject of free will, which is not a physicist thing, they just go off the wires. It's interesting um, because Sam got the same argument for his book, The Moral Landscape, because he's not a moral philosopher. And so moral philosophers will are really, really tough on that book because he's just not a moral philosopher. So, you know, some of that may be inevitable when you're writing about things outside of your discipline. Yeah, and he's a scientist. I mean, he's a neuroscientist. So he's got that sort of materialistic uh, substance bent. The silliness of that book is, and uh, what's his name? Sean Carroll had a debate with him in which he nails his butt. Pardon my, my uh, crudeness, but I'm smelling the litter box. Um, and says, and, and invokes the famous Hume is ought distinction and says, Harris, you can't, you, no matter what you say about a fact, what you say about what ought to be doesn't derive from that fact. Yeah, Jordan that, Peterson that, called him out on that too in their debate. Yes, he did indeed, exactly. You, you, you can say his well-being. He has that well-being concept. We should, we should promote well-being and all that. And I have a little section is, that says we can't promote any well-being. Harris, you're telling us we can't control our thoughts. We can't control our actions. Everything is predetermined. How much well-being is being spread by around the world and who's getting what was determined, as you said, at the Big Bang. And now you're saying we can promote well-being. This is what I call free will speak after the Orwell. You're right. Like free will speak is used because, again, whether free will is real or whether it's the illusion of free will, it's the way our brains tell us to communicate. But if I'm in a room with 10 people and nine of those people want to light the, you know, light fires and grab their pitchforks and do some harm to somebody – the chances are others are going to join in because of, again, the influence of what, mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. And if nine out of the 10 say like, no, let's be peaceful here. Let's help this person out. Let's make this space not, not have violence. Then, you know, the, the other 10th person is going to follow along with that. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, the way you're explaining it, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get on board mm -hmm. because I think that in any moment, a person or a group of people, 
-hmm. can share their experience mm -hmm. and that can absolutely influence a person mm -hmm. to do what the group is doing or to consider at least the the preponderance of all of those people saying that will hold some sort of weight more than if just one person's so if one person goes like look the earth isn't flat the flat earther is going to go like i already know it is leave me alone it, it's done deal but if nine guys who you know if a if, if hundred people put the data out there. So it's Sam is essentially saying that if people step forward mm -hmm. and suggest that we change the system mm -hmm. because that's the way they see it, mm -hmm. then there's a chance of influencing the person mm -hmm. to also come on board and side with the data. And I still see all of that very easily fitting into determinism. Mm -hmm. Well, your party example and the beating up with the people getting together or deposing, I completely agree with everything, but that's not determinism. What, what you just said about the party has nothing to do with determinism because determinism would say that all behavior, this is in Harris's word, all behavior was set at the Big Bang. So whoever gets together, whoever wants to beat up someone, whoever gets together to stop them, whoever does what you say is influence has been set at the Big Bang. There's no real influence. There's nothing that anybody can say or think in that hypothetical party room, if you're a determinist, that can influence anything. It's all been predetermined at the Big Bang. So I agree with you. It's just not determinist thinking. If you think that I can influence you or you can influence me or Brit can influence you, you are not a determinist. Because what you're saying yes. is that would all Would all here, determinists agree with that? So would all it would 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 most determinists agree with that? Because I think most determinists would say, or at least some determinists would say, would be that if you you know it started at the Big Bang, and yes, if you knew every particle, you know it would play out, and it would play out in a way where Bill and Britt would meet each other, and they would influence each other, and they would become friends, and they would change each other's mind on this, and that could still be part of of the movie that's being played, essentially. So it, would, it all, would all determinists agree with that definition of determinism, I guess I would say? Well, if you're not a compatibilist, so that you have that sort of compromise, mushiness. Yeah, do all, yeah. yeah. And I do think that it, most determinists make compatible moves. Absolutely. They, that's free will speak. And I have a section yeah. in the book called Having It Both Ways. And I quote Harris and Sapolsky and some other people a physicist, brilliant minds who say, our decision was determined 10 seconds before we do anything, it's determined. And then two minutes later, this, this wonderful, brilliant physicist says, oh, but you know, we've learned over the years to self-control. So we have self-control and we judge morality and, and responsibility by how much self-control. Now that's called having it both ways. That's free will speak. You cannot say that everything we do was set at the Big Bang and determined 10 seconds before. By the way, the 10 seconds before is not right because that's right. just picking an arbitrary time. It's all going right. backwards and was mm -hmm. determined. But anyway, they, they have some scientific evidence they think, which they don't, which doesn't say anything about free will or determinism. In any case, um, two seconds later, she's saying that we have self-control. Well, wait a second. Take your choice here. You can't have both. If everything we say and do was predetermined at the Big Bang, it's incoherent to say we have any level of self-control. 
And what I call this in the book is fancy dancing. The fancy dancing is when determinists hit morality and responsibility. Because the bottom line is there's no morality and there's no responsibility if you don't control your thoughts and you don't control your actions. End of story, end of paragraph, end of chapter, end of books. But the determinists are very smart, moral, decent people who want to preserve morality and want to preserve personal responsibility. So they do this fancy dance of shuffling. Like Sapolsky when he says, well, we got to lock up murderers. Excuse me, if everything is predetermined by these neural impulses, your brain going all the way back to the Big Bang and a chain of physical causes, blah, 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 blah. You can't lock up anyone. You'll lock them up if you are predetermined to lock them up. But you can't advise anyone we should take criminals off the street. You're not allowed to do that as a determinist under your own philosophy. So I call this fancy dancing or having it both ways. I have a chapter called Having It Both Ways. And so the answer to your question is determinists in their philosophy in the absolute strict what they're saying about how the world works. How does reality work? It's determined by a causal machine of physical effects that influence each other one after the other from the Big Bang. Everything you think, everything you do, you have nothing to do with it. That behavior in the room of attacking the person, defending the person, influencing the person, all set, as Harris says, back at the Big Bang. But in talking about things, especially morality and responsibility, which determinists do not want to jettison, they speak out of both sides of their mouth with free will speak. All of a sudden, we have self-control. Really, how do you have self-control, Sapolsky, if those neurons, you've never seen a neuron that fires on its own, which, by the way, is not, not, there's nothing wrong with that in free will, by the way, but that's another part of this discussion. So, so. We can't lock up people like he says, when a car is broken, you take it off the road so that it doesn't hurt people. Sure you do. If you have free will, if you're determined, you drive it like a psycho killer, if that's what you're determined to do. And you take it off the road if that's what you're determined to do. But you don't tell people, oh, yes, it's wise to take it off the road. What you think is wise, it's what's been determined, as Harris says, set back at the Big Bang. So you're right. They talk out of both sides of their mouth. Would determinists agree with it? Depends on which mouth they're talking out of. They would agree with it if you say, how does the world work? There's a guy named Sean Carroll who's a physicist. He's got his own fancy dance. He says that there's two kinds of way describing, there's two ways of describing the world, at least two. And we can describe things in behavioral terms. You're motivated by this, you have that fear, you have this intention, you want to scratch the itch, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the human level of descriptions, right? Then we have the physical world of descriptions. The quarks are going like that, and the field is going like that, and your leptons are hitting that, and all this mechanical muscles moving and brain impulses are firing. That's the physical level. And he's ultimately a scientist, and ultimately that physical level governs everything of the descriptive level. But he says, hey, it's useful. To use that descriptive level, sure, it helps us understand people. It doesn't help us understand anything, Carol. That's a thought also in your head that's being determined at the physical level. So that's his fancy dancing. Oh, we have these two descriptions and we can use one when it's useful. Harris says something very similar. He says we can adopt truths that are appropriate to the occasion. Really? Well, you just told us we can't control our thoughts or actions. You just told us the behavior went back to the Big Bang and we have no say in it. So how are we going to adopt a truth appropriate to the occasion? How are we going to decide that? If What thought is deciding that? Well, a causally compelled thought. 
to using free will speak. We can't decide what truth is appropriate to the occasion if decisions are illusory. This is it's nonsense. It's talking out of both sides of your mouth. I'm just going to point to one. We've actually had a lot of comments um, as as we were talking, and I didn't want to derail on some of these other cool paths. Um, but we had a, a, a lot of people add their thoughts in. But I think I'm going to close with this one, which is I appreciate this episode. One of my pet pet, pet peeves of post Mormon content creators is a basic. Sam Harris take on free will, it's nice to see more investigation, which I think does happen where if people are using free or Sam, if people are using Sam Harris to help them deconstruct mm -hmm. religion, which he does mm -hmm. have some things to say about, um, yeah. then it almost becomes, especially for Mormons who are kind of wired for profits, mm -hmm. it can become you know, Sam Harris is the prophet now of morality and free will and all the things, you know, he just becomes a new prophet. And so I think our audience really appreciated digging into this a little bit more. I think my, so my last question, and then I'll let Bill add anything he wants to say is just how was, how has the response been to your book and where can people find your book? Um, they can find it in two or three weeks when I put up a revised edition which is partly because my thinking has changed a bit, uh, learning a very complicated subject having to think for me and for having to think about it over uh, extended time and having new ideas and hearing a new physicist saying a new theory of that. Oh, that's interesting. How does that fit into the puzzle? So, and I also, because I wanted to illustrate it. So I have some pretty, pretty cool artists doing some really cool illustrations that I, that I sent you, you should check out. Um, so, so don't buy it for three weeks to a month, and then, then you'll have the newer version. It'll be posted on Amazon. Um, what was the other question? I'm sorry. How has the response been to your book? Oh, um, well, like everything else, there are, uh, there are Harris supporters who think I'm attacking him when I'm really not attacking him. I'm using his ideas. I'm attacking his ideas as they reflect mainstream determinist thought. He was my springboard, the first thing I read and said, this can't be right. Um, actually, as I've said very clearly, and I say it in the book, I, I love his stuff. I listen to his stuff and I agree with 95% of, of what he says. It's just the, uh, the two books or the philosophy part that I have a problem with. So there's Harris supporters who think I'm attacking him and that their job is to defend his honor. There's people who say that I'm arguing for determinism, who... Uh, have they read the book? I, it's hard to believe they have. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of people, and this really has to do with why is free will important? You know, what are you surrendering your beliefs to? What Mormonism, the process of deconstructing and, and, and trying to find other ways of going about. I think we've surrendered so many beliefs in our lives that so many people whether they read the book or not, and I can't tell how what percentage of the people actually read the book who comment. Maybe you have an idea, but I got a feeling it's less than a majority. I can predict, like the science test, that it's less than a majority. So a lot of them are just sort of just, you know, it's hard to be open to things like you are and really be vulnerable enough to think I'm open to this. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, um, and I think about that, too. How do I troubleshoot my arguments? Maybe I'm wrong. How am I wrong? And try, try to think about that. I think too many people have surrendered their authority to their beliefs and don't do what you do. And, oh, I'm, I'm, how dare he? I'm, we're all determined. What, da, da, da. to which I would say, really, where does that thought come from? 
causal forces or truth. You got a choice there. You can't pick them both. So people reflect what they believe. I, I like to think that some people are listen to it and say, huh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that if I say all thoughts are compelled, I've just taken away my own ability to speak the truth because that had to be a compelled thought also if all thoughts are compelled. And that's an argument I haven't seen anywhere else. I mean, it's been made in a different context. No, the same context by Noam Chomsky, who I quote, saying, let's go to a baseball game. If you're a determinist, you don't believe it. You're going to influence people. Those people have already been predetermined to believe you or not, if you're really a determinist. So it's all nonsense. Let's go to, to a ball game. He's the only person I know who's really talked about it that way, except for the guy who came up with the whole idea of performative contradictions, and, and mainly about postmodernism, things that say there's no truth. It's just power games. It's like, really? Well, that's your power game then, huh? So you've disqualified yourself, Mr. Postmodernist. And a lot of people have raised the performative contradiction in that context, but not in the free will context, as far as I know, other than Chomsky. Mm, super interesting. Uh, Bill, do you want to wrap up? And then what we'll do is uh, pull you off, David, and, and then Bill and I will kind of chat and do our post-production. But it was just so lovely talking yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, likewise. Thanks Thank so much. Um, I looked on great, Amazon. I mean, you, you've got... Podcast. I looked at Amazon. You've got eighty-five uh, percent of the folks who have reviewed your book gave it a four or five star. Phenomenal. Um, I don't propose. I don't know the subject as well as you. So when listeners and viewers see me pushing back against you, it's only because my intuition and my mind, which also mm -hmm. is flawed and biased, is sees something going on, and I'm trying to kind of have a conversation around it. So I, I want to say I thank you for engaging that. Um, I, I would ask folks to study both sides, not to take Sam Harris's point of view, because as you point out, his argument, and I agree, has flaws to it. I think sometimes he presents analogies that are meant to drive you towards a certain angle and not really represent the problem as it exists. And so I want to say thank you for putting all the work and time and energy into knowing this issue far better than me and giving people a chance to wrestle with the issue of is there free will or isn't and I also want to just note that you and Sam Harris are tacking this issue from a very certain perspective. For instance, you say, you know, Sam Harris has his view of free will and you write a book essentially tackling Sam Harris's view of free will that even as folks are studying uh, David Lawrence and uh, Sam Harris's point of view, recognize that this issue is broader than that as well. Um, but I think you've given us a really good starting point at understanding the flaws of Harris's argument and whether it still holds up or not at the end of the day is up to everybody to decide. Well, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. You liked that ending, didn't you? David? I'm going to, I'm going to continually use free will <laughs> rhetoric, right? Cause I can't help it even if there is or isn't. Well, one of the things I've said to the determinants is respond to this stuff. Most of the stuff you don't talk about, you take for granted causation. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Show me how I'm wrong. Find the, you know, find the tests that say that this is a causal link. I'd like to see one of them. Find, you know, the, the solution to quantum mechanics where the greatest minds in the world say, we don't know what the hell this means, but it does mean that there's a problem with causation. So, so I, I kind of want to say to these guys, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Start addressing some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah totally. I would really love to, I hope you and Sam collide and, 
public discourse somewhere. That would just be really nice to see that happen. All right, so David, we thank you for your time and we'll send you on your way. And just thank you so much. We just so appreciate it. Oh, thank you for a great podcast. I mean, all your podcasts, not this episode. Terrific. Good work. Yeah, and folks, check out uh, David's book, Are We Really Biochemical Robots? Um, I think the conversation is fascinating and it all feels like when you really get to it, we're all kind of playing on this line and, and the debate is pretty balanced. Like there's good, smart arguments that are articulate on both sides, David, and you've obviously added to that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right, Bill, do we have free will? Um, man, do you, do you have a couple minutes here? I do have a couple minutes. All right. So. What do you think? Yeah. So here's where I'm at. So I get, I get a little hung up on, and I don't, I, I won't be able to articulate this. So folks who are watching, bear with me. Anytime we use rhetoric in our conversation as if we're choosing, immediately you can see David go like, ha gotcha, you know? And I don't, I don't really think it shows one way or the other what's going on. It's just how we communicate. I am going to tell you my point of view, and I'm going to hope that it influences you because I think I'm right. And if I can influence you to think I'm right, now I think I'm more right. Um, and so we use our words to try to say like there's room to change your mind. That's one thing going on. And then the other thing is I really do have the ability to change your mind, even if there isn't free will, right? Like if I stand up and if you, if your point of view is that. um, Yeah. If, if you convince me of something or don't convince me of something, it's because of everything that's happened in my past. Yeah. If, if you say left-handed people are bad, if you're like, look, all left-handers can't stand them. And I come Actually, along and go. Statistically, they're more attractive. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I just, okay. I, all right. I don't even know what to do with that. So Sorry, if you I just say, had to add that in. If you say left-handers are bad people and I go, hey, I'm a left-hander. Mm-hmm. Now, neither one of us needed free will to do either one of those things. Yeah, that that would be my thing is that he I okay, so so where I was convinced with him is that I do think that because I have listened to Sam Harris and other determinists, especially the anti-religious types. Um uh oh, I just lost it. Um because I've listened to them, what was I going to say? Um they just, they just define determinism in a certain way, and he's not quite defining it in the same way. And so what he says is determinism is that, you know, we can't interact or we can't be affected or we can't um, really interact with truth in any way. And I don't see determinism that way. I see determinism as it could have been possible that at the Big Bang with consciousness that you would get a monkey to a point that they're actually interacting with truth in in a real way and having to have arguments about it that doesn't mean that it's not determined yeah um is i this it, is so difficult because i don't i don't yet have the comprehension or the vernacular 
to wrap up my thoughts really neatly and and to persuade anyone. I yeah, it, I was it, persuaded that we haven't looked at those scientific studies that we've mm-hmm. cited that we've cited well enough. I I feel like of anything that you and I could get from that conversation, it was that we've cited these studies, but maybe we haven't actually looked at them, which is a good. I mean. I'll take that critique any day that I need to maybe look at those studies more closely before I think that there's scientific evidence to show that our actions are predetermined. But for me, um, yeah, it goes back to this idea of what is reality. And I just still get the sense that the religious people really want there to be libertarian free will so that you have choices so that you're morally responsible and you have God and you're judged of God. And that judgment is fair because you could have chosen another way. You have to have that peace. Um, whereas from Eastern, what do we get from Eastern religion or even psychedelic people? It's like, you are the universe expressing and, you know, understanding itself. You are the universe in a drop, you know, it's a totally different, um, metaphysical religious view of what's going on here, which is that you, you kind of are the universe. You're an expression of the universe. And I think where I end up at the end of this is that are we biochemical robots? No. But are we robots with consciousness and highly, highly, highly so inter- so relational that we don't even understand how connected we are? Maybe. Yeah. I'm okay with us being robots that are highly relational with consciousness that we don't understand. Like I, that still can make sense to me. Are we biochemical in the sense that he, he wants to make determinism that we're just robots. Like we literally are just robots and you put the formula in and then you get the formula out. But if you add consciousness to that and you add randomness and you add um, how relational you are, we are even, you know, where cells can vibrate across the universe because they've touched each other before. Like, yeah, that's really mysterious. I get that. Um, or I don't get that. It's mysterious. Right. Uh, but if you add all that in, yeah, I, I just tend to think like your instinct that if I really knew all the influences and if I really knew everything going on in the dark, it, I, I just don't get a sense that we have free will the, the way that people think that they do. Yeah. And, w- and when he says, when he comes in trying to uh, crush the other side of the argument by saying, look, that's not what Sam Harris is saying. Sam Harris says ever since the Big Bang, it's all been determined. All- I don't know that that's in my mind when he says that, what I think Sam Harris, what I think, again, we'd have to let Sam Harris decide what he's saying. But what I think Sam Harris is saying is that the moment the universe was put into motion from that point forward, anytime you go back in time to that exact moment and everything is exactly the same. The movie would have played the same way. Would have played the exact same way out. I yeah, I don't think he's saying. I still, that- I still get that sense. But his argument is that if you bring in morality, all of a sudden you're you're playing free will, or if you bring in that we can affect each other, you're bringing in free free will, and and I just I I don't think that all determinists would really see it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that determinists would say that. Oh, just because we still have to lock up psychopaths, or just because. Um, we're talking about truth. It, it may have been possible to know if you were to, you know, rewind the movie, play the movie again. Wow. Apes got good enough that they could start having um, experiments on reality and learn about reality and try to convince each other about reality and get closer to reality, hopefully from those yeah. conversations that could all be part of the movie. 
Yeah. And, and if he says like, we shouldn't try to, if, if you're a determinist, you shouldn't try to persuade people to lock up criminals because there isn't free will. Hence, people are just going to do what they do. So there's no need to manipulate or persuade anyone to do anything. And that's free will talk. And I, I can't get there. I couldn't get there either. I couldn't get there either. Because even though like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this sentence or whatever, I, I still think that, and, and even if you were to play the movie again, and I'm going to say the exact same thing of whatever I'm going to say, we should still be involved in the conversations of trying to figure out reality, even if everything could have been predicted if you knew every particle in the universe, which we yeah. don't and never will. And so why does that part even matter? Anyway, interesting guy. Yeah. I'm going to think about it some more. Yeah, me too. I might even pick up the book to be mm -hmm. honest, because I want, I, I want to see, um, I want to see some of the more specific examples and I want to dig into the studies a little bit better, but my, but my intuition oh. I think hasn't changed that. I, I still think that this we're so, um, relational. And to me, the biggest argument is that most of what you're doing is just going on in the darkness of your own brain. And we have so much going on there that, you know, even if you, like you said, Bill, even if I do have free will, it's so limited and you can't even that know. It's the same as not having that, free will. That, that essentially, yeah. And so, and so then people will ask Sam, well, then what do you do with that? And and Sam says something like, well, that's really hopeful because if you are a relational machine, you can plug things in to make your life better, that you don't have to be the same person yesterday that you are today. So like we decide, Bill and I, we decide to have these conversations because they give us something in our life, right? And we can notice, we're, we can be smart enough monkeys to notice that and we can choose we still have choices even you know that that's always still on the table we can still choose to have these conversations but we're we're almost mindfully inputting these conversations into our system because they make us better people and we learn things and we um experience more joy and have less suffering and all. and so you can almost play with that robot thing and say okay if you're if you are a robot with consciousness that's highly relational that means that there is hope that you can change the inputs enough to become the person that you most want to be. And so I don't think that you lose everything with determinism. Whereas I think that David thinks that once you go to determinism, you lose morality. I mean, you lose everything. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily so, but I'm going to think about it a lot more. Yeah. And I would simply say whether there's free will or not, if we know better, we do better. And, and yeah, so the crux for me is I think people can share their experience, even if there isn't free will, and it can persuade a person or group of people to show up differently the moment after they now know that other person's shared experience. Yeah. And so you can take in, I mean, we can start actually playing with reality a little bit and the, the, this is what's the most interesting thing about being alive right now is that we can actually start to have conversations about what's really going on here. And a lot of this was like mysterious. Hey, we don't have the science. Like we're not even close to having the science, but it's at least really fun to have the conversation. And I think I it's it. fun to have the conversation because of the home I was raised in. And um, my grandpa was, I, I learned something about my grandpa. Um, I never had a relationship with him, but he was in, 
when he lived in Iran, he had an interfaith um, like community and he ran it. And so they would all gather and talk about religion and they were all from different religions. And I was like, oh, there I am <laughs> all the way back there. Anyway. Yeah. There's, yeah, we, we are on, again, I don't want to keep trying to go like, oh, I'm right. And David's wrong. Right. But we are all a product of everything that came before all the way back to that spark of something 13 point something billion years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Still a fun movie. Even if it's a movie, yeah. it's a hell of a movie. There isn't any other movie in the universe I'd rather be a part of. So no. And it, you're an actor or an actress in that play or that Fine. movie. And at some point Fine. your part yeah. ends and it moves on to a different part of the play and you're no longer participating. Yeah. And I can still, do my part to try to make that ending, you know, better and da da da. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I someone. lose. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I lose. I don't think I lose that. Even, yeah. if, even if it is a movie, but yeah. really interesting episode. We have to apologize. I had some kids in the background. David had some dogs in the background, but for those of you who stuck with it, um, I hope it was a really valuable conversation for you. And, and I think it's one we'll, we'll return to as we kind of dig into this more. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Folks, if you like the, the show, please go to almostawaken.org. For those who donate, we deeply appreciate you. Uh, folks, if you feel an inclination, we'd love for you to hit the donate button and uh, send us a few bucks, even if you're not choosing actively to do so, because there is no free will. Yeah, whatever and, uh, way gets that, if it's free right. will or not, I'll take it either way. Yeah, so please <laughs> donate and to help us keep the show alive so we can have conversations like this. Uh, please support David Lawrence. Uh, you can purchase his book at Amazon, I'm sure, through his publisher as well. And uh, Britt, I'm just excited to come in every week and have these kinds of cool conversations. Next week, we'll have a conversation uh, around mushrooms, uh, I believe, uh, with our guest. And so that'll be an interesting uh, about mushrooms, not only the psychedelic ones, but just mushrooms in general, too. And I think it'll be a helpful conversation for health enthusiasts and for folks who want to alter their consciousness. And so tune in next week. And uh, otherwise, Britt, have a great week and uh, thank the world of you. You too. And thanks for everyone. We had a lot of comments. We had a couple of people who were begging to call in. And so um, we haven't done that on, on our podcast yet. Maybe we'll have to talk about that. But uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really appreciative of those who followed and commented as as we were going it it makes the conversation you'll you'll bring things up when you comment that i'll ask about and I'm, I'm glad that it was riveting enough that people wanted to call in and ask their question love it all right i'm gonna choose to end the show now all right see ya take it easy this has been another almost awakened episode Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 